Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Family and friends get together and hearts are merry. Children are in wonder and expectation. It is a time filled with bright lights, beautiful decorations, and the delightful sounds of joy. How did this season come to be? Christmas is about a baby born whose single life changed the world for good. More than anyone else who was ever born, Jesus changed the world for good. Christmas is promise, presence, and peace. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Xavier. I get the wonderful privilege of serving as the campus pastor at our Missouri City campus. If you're here this morning, thank you so much. I know that you thought it was going to still be raining so that you could sleep in because that's the deal you made with God, but he stopped it and you made it in, so I appreciate you. Uh, If you didn't make it and you're joining us online, it's okay. We're a little jealous, but it's okay. Enjoy some coffee for us, Uh, but we thank you for being here as well. Uh, We're jumping right into... um, the sermon today. We, we've been in a series called Christmas Is. Oh, I forgot to say before we get started. I don't know if you know this, but the 930 service here at the Sugarland campus, you've built a little bit of a reputation for yourself. You are known as the most amening portion of our entire church at any campus. And so, amen, amen. I would hate for today for you to lose your streak and notoriety, because if you do, I will start a rumor about you. And so that is my encouragement to you today that you are allowed to say amen as frequently as you please. Amen. Amen. Okay, good to go. Anyway, we've been in this series called Christmas Is, and today we're talking about how Christmas is promise. And what we want to do today for a moment is I want us to zoom in on this Christmas promise and use it as a microcosm or just a, a mini version of how God normally decides to interact with all of the other promises in our life. And so that's your overview. Uh, maybe you do or don't know, but about a month ago, my wife and I, we welcomed our first son our only son, our only kid into the world. His name is Eli Roman. Yes. Round of applause for my wife. 33 hours of labor. I know, exactly. 24 of which was unmedicated. And after 33 hours, my wife produced Eli Roman, and I think we have a picture of him. Oh, my goodness. Isn't he the cutest kid ever? I know just like his mom. And here's the deal. I'm glad we had a cute baby. I don't necessarily believe, I used to, but I don't necessarily believe all babies are born cute. I used to, but then my parents showed me my baby pictures and I was like, oh my goodness. Like you still loved me. I'm so much more appreciative now. So like I wasn't a cute kid. So I'm glad my wife like produced a cute kid and I'm glad my wife was a cute kid. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just grateful. You got to listen to how people compliment your baby. They'll tell you if they think your kid is cute or not. Because sometimes they say, oh my goodness, what a gift from God. I'm like, you don't think my baby beautiful? You don't think my son is cute? Tell me. We need public affirmation. 
And so, anyway, well, we welcome our son into the world, and people have been having conversations with us because he's not sleeping as well, and of course he can't hold his neck up yet. He's not really, he's just a sack of potatoes right now. And uh, they, they keep asking, say, hey, I promise you it gets better. They say, eventually he sleeps through the night, eventually he'll hold his head up, eventually he'll start walking and talking, and then I promise you you'll forget all of this and you'll want him to sit down and be quiet, and it, it'll all go through. And, and we and my wife, we're looking forward to forgetting the sleepless nights. And so if we could go ahead and, but we're trying to embrace, but you have all of these people, like I said, they come up and they make you these promises. And essentially what I started to realize is this is kind of how your life and my life works when it comes to our Christianity is that normally when we are in a situation or normally when we're in a circumstance that gets uncomfortable or that is not ideal, people will show up and they will remind us of these truths that maybe we know already, but for whatever reason aren't as prevalent in our heads. They aren't as, as forefront in our mind. Like I understand that kids grow up and get older actually quite quickly, but when you're not sleeping at night and when there's all these things going on, sometimes you just need to be reminded of how things work. And that's how the promises of God work. Did they show up to give us a reminder of things that we might already know to be true, but just aren't prevalent in our heads at the moment? And so what I want us to do is I want us to go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter number three, and I want us to look at one of the first promises that God gives in the Bible. In the room today, if you grew up and you and, and you uh, you celebrated Christmas growing up, you know that normally, or maybe you're married now and it's like this in your house. You know that normally there's a parent who can keep secrets about Christmas gifts, and then there's the other parent who, for whatever reason, cannot keep a Christmas gift a secret. Like they're always giving hints about what the gift might be. And so they're asking your son, hey, you know, did you still want that new video game that you really have been wanting for a long time? Oh, yeah, you did? Mm, you might be really excited on the 25th. Be quiet. Just, just let them be excited. You don't have to tease it and give it away. And then there's the other parent that's tight-lipped. That was my dad. My dad didn't give away anything whatsoever. As a matter of fact, my dad told us every year that he wasn't getting us anything for Christmas, and then he always showed up with it. Except for the year I was 16, he really didn't get it, and so I was waiting. I was like, oh, he's going to surprise us on New Year's. And then I was still waiting. It was like Valentine's Day before I finally realized, oh, he was serious. And so if you're still watching, I'm still bitter. I still want my Christmas gift. Um, and so anyway, I think that this is kind of what God does in Genesis chapter number three. I want to show you, we see Genesis chapter three, God is about to um, pronounce and reveal some consequences. Because Adam and Eve, the first humans ever created, have chosen now to redefine good and evil in their own minds. And what's happening now is God is going to tell them the consequences of their actions, both man and woman and Satan, who's now taking the form of this serpent. He's going to give all of them these consequences. But nestled right in the middle of this conversation about consequences is a promise. And it's almost as if God was teasing a Christmas gift. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 14, 15. It says this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Everybody say her offspring. Her 
He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the reason I say that God is kind of teasing this promise here is because there aren't many times in the Bible that you see anybody referred to as the offspring of a woman because normally offspring is talked about in biblical terms in terms of seed and, that, and that's just if you don't know this but that's just not how bodies and humans and, and things work but if you don't know ask your parents uh, but the point is that we see God refer to the offspring of a woman here and he says hey there's going to be hostility between Satan and the offspring of a woman almost as if there's a man who's going to be born without the help of another man it'll be between a woman and God the offspring of a woman and if you get what I'm getting at here, he's talking about and foreshadowing the birth of Jesus. And then he talks about this mutual destruction, if you will, that, that, that the serpent will bruise the heel of the man, but the man will crush the head of the serpent. Almost as if foreshadowing this moment on the cross where Jesus would ultimately crush death, hell, and the grave, but in the process, lose his own life. And so even in Genesis chapter number three, we see a foreshadowing of the promise of God as if God was so excited about this Christmas gift and about this Christmas promise that he couldn't wait until the New Testament to start talking about it. He started to tease it throughout the entire Old Testament. And then from Genesis all the way to, uh, to the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, all the promises and prophecies are just more details and more information about this coming Christmas promise about this coming Jesus and then eventually we see Matthew chapter 1 verse number 21 or let's actually start at verse number 18 we see Jesus finally show up and it says this Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 it says this is how Jesus the Messiah was born his mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. What a good guy. And then 20, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is a promise. Joseph was about to give up and leave, and God inserts a promise. Verse number 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so you see this promise that happens in Genesis, and you see this promise revealed in the New Testament all of this time in between. And here's the point of me showing you all that is this right here. You can write it down. The promises and prophecies of God fulfilled in the birth of Jesus remind us that we can trust every promise of God. The promises and prophecies of God fulfilled in the birth of Jesus remind us that we can trust every promise of God in the Bible. That if God is strong enough to bring all of these things through for, to fruition over all of these years with all of these circumstances, then certainly he's able to fulfill the promises in your life and in my life that he's made to us through his scripture. 
And I think if we were to dig a little deeper, remember this microcosm, we'll see actually that God chooses to fulfill those promises in a very similar way throughout Scripture and in your life. I want to give you your next blanks. It's under this thing called the promise cycle, but I don't want you to write anything down yet. I want to show you something. Normally, promises show up like this, that that God makes a promise normally because he sees some type of problem, and he sees a problem big enough for God to intercede in. And so it starts with this problem, and eventually... God makes a promise that he's going to fix this problem. I'm glad I didn't look down at the sign first. I just trust it. And so I was like, what if this doesn't say promise? God makes a promise that he's going to fix this problem. And then eventually, you, you know what comes next. Eventually, somewhere down here, it might happen tomorrow, next week, next year, whatever it is, God provides on the promise that he made. The difficult part of all of this is that separating the problem and the promise from the provision is this sign that you don't want me to turn around. Separating the problem and the promise from the provision of God normally is a process. That rarely do we see God, see a problem, make a promise, and immediately provide. That normally filling in this space is this process. And if you don't believe me, I want to show it to you. Oh, those are your blanks, by the way. The blanks are promise, uh, process, and provision. The reason problem isn't up there is because the Lord gave me this one after we print it. And I didn't want to be financially irresponsible and throw away all the things that we printed. So as a result, just use your pen, write it out to the side. You'll be all right. For those of you who are perfectionists, like, oh, it needs a blank. Just draw one. You'll be all right. And so God makes this promise. Let me show you this cycle over and over again in Scripture. Remember the first problem, Genesis chapter 3. Man is about to be separated from God. That is a problem, obviously. So what does God do? He makes this problem, that, he makes this promise that one day he's going to provide a man who's going to finally crush the serpent. That's Jesus. But then we wait throughout the entire Old Testament until Jesus is born, and then that is the process until we eventually see the provision. And if I'm being honest, even the birth of Jesus is not the complete fulfillment of the process of the promise because Jesus's death is what finally provides us reconciliation with God and then if I'm honest with you even after that Jesus gives us a new problem which is hey I'm gonna come back and everybody who believes in me is gonna go with us to heaven and so as a result I promise you I'm coming back but there's this process now that you have to walk through of telling your friends relatives associates and neighbors about me before I finally provide 100% of the thing that we promised in Genesis. You see it all over the Bible. You see it, let me tell you, the children of Israel, for you Bible scholars, you want me to prove it to you again? You see the children of Israel, they're in bondage. That is a problem. They're in slavery. And so God provides the promised land, but then they have to go through this process in order to get to the land, but they get stuck in this process, but eventually they inhabit it, and that is God's provision. 
Let's go to Mary and Joseph. You don't want to ask them. You don't like the Old Testament. Mary and Joseph. That God, they have a problem. Joseph has shown up, and the woman he's about to be engaged to is pregnant. And Joseph didn't even get to do the fun part. And so then that is obviously a problem for Joseph. He is about to leave. But God makes this promise to Mary and Joseph, hey, the son that you are about to be, be birthed is Emmanuel. He will remove the sins of the people from them. However, that doesn't happen when Jesus is one, two, three, or four. Mary then has to go through this process of an unmedicated childbirth in a manger before we ever see the provision of God. And the same thing will happen in your life and in my life with every single promise. That separating a problem and a promise will always be some type of process before we see the provision of God. But I have a question for you. I ask a lot of questions. This is why I'm scared to be a parent because I know my son's going to ask a lot of questions. And then he's going to say, hey, son. Uh, he's going to say, hey, dad, uh, what about this? I'll say, I don't know, son. Go ask your pastor. And he's going to say, dad, you're my pastor. I'll say, uh-uh, not at home. Go ask your other pastor. Pastor Johnny's smarter than I am. Ask him. And so I'm going to send him to Pastor Johnny, and Pastor Johnny have to answer to all his questions. And so, but, but I ask a lot of questions is the point. And one of the things I started asking about this is why in the world— does God make promises? Like, think about it. Is, is this an essential step in your life? Is this an essential part of this equation? Like, let's think about it for a second. Couldn't you just have a problem and then go through a process and then God provide? Does he have to say anything about your problem in the middle of it? Like, think about it. Couldn't Adam and Eve have messed up then the Old Testament just happened, and then one day, boom, Jesus. Did God have to spend all of that time getting people to transcribe prophecies and promises throughout the ages? Like, could, did he have to do Couldn't Jesus just, did God have to talk about Jesus in advance in order for the blood to reconcile us back to God? It, the more you think about this question, the more you're like, the answer is no. He didn't have to make a promise. So, so now we have to ask so the question, God, why would you choose to make a promise to us? And we're going to look at some scripture, but I'm going to give you the answer in advance. I think God chooses to make promises because God's promises produce hope. God's promises, they produce hope. And, and here's the deal. I'll give you the next fill in the blank as well. Hope is the conviction that what God says is true. When you think about this idea of hope, I don't want you to think about hope like you think like, oh, like this morning when I walked outside, I was like, oh my goodness, I hope it's not raining when I walk to my car. Like I, I, I had nothing to back it up. I was just like, oh man, God, if that, that would be kind of great. It was just kind of a, you know, just kind of this flippant hope type thing. But, but, but hope in the Bible is the conviction that what God promised, I'm gonna see him provide. It's not flippant, it's not flippant, it's something that is settled, it's something that is sure. It's not like when people say, oh, like, oh, man, I, like, I hope the Cowboys win this year. Not based on any fact, not based on anything, you know, nothing they can see. It's not faith. It's just hope. Flip it. Same way I predict the weather. But, but biblical hope, you're supposed to laugh there. I'm sorry. But biblical hope is this idea that what God says is 100% true. And the promises of God 
are meant to produce that hope in our lives. And hope is provided to help us make it through the process. And God wants you to have hope. He wants me to have hope. I want to prove it to you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11. One of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible. Here's what it says. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. This is so good. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and, Pastor Johnny, a hope. God is saying, I don't only want to provide. I don't only want to give you the provision. I made you a promise because I needed to give you strength in the middle of the process. That hope provides us the strength needed to make it through the process. That without the promises of God to lean on, you and I would give up and never see the provision of God. That when life started happening and when things did not go our way, we would have a tendency to focus on the problem and not the provision. So God gives us a promise to carry with us through the process. And so here's what it looks like, because this is what you don't see. Let's say I remove this problem. What happens is in this cycle, this problem doesn't go away. If there's a problem in your life right now, you carry that problem around. And then you carry it through the process until the moment you get to God and he exchanges your problem for a provision. And the truth is, you would get tired of carrying your problem along the way of this process. So God provides you a promise to look at while you carry your problem through the process. And the point is that I look at the promise to provide me the strength so that I don't get deterred by the problem. And hope provides me the strength that I need to make it through the process. This is why God says, I want to give you a hope and a future. Not just a future. I don't only want good things for you in your life. I want to give you a hope and a future. Here's the next part of it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 23. This is why it says, let us hold unswervingly to this hope we professed because he who promised is faithful. The Bible just ties itself together. This is why promises and hope go hand in hand. So God's promises provide us this hope. But then here's the problem is that the process can hinder our hope. The process can hinder our hope. That there's part of the process that just makes you and me want to focus on our problem. And I just want to give you a few of these things because if you're honest and if I'm honest, there are times in your Christian walk where you have felt like giving up. And not just giving up on maybe the ultimate promise of salvation, 
but losing the strength to continue to live the Christian life because you're not seeing any provision yet. You're not seeing any payoff yet. Losing the strength to continue to be faithful in your marriage. Losing the strength to continue to turn the other cheek to your enemies. Losing the strength to not gossip about people over time. Losing the strength to keep being nice to that one boss who says just slightly condescending things to you about once every two weeks and they think that you're super nice but on the end Inside, you've been thinking about telling them off for like the last month and a half, but you've been clinging to the fact that one day the Lord is going to fight your battles. But if you're being honest, you're about to lose strength and you might say some things that aren't necessarily included in the Bible like instruction. But the point is that if you and I are honest in the middle of this process, we lose a little bit of strength. And some of the things that hinder our hope and thus hinder our strength in the middle of, these, uh, in the middle of this process is this, is number one is disappointment. Because I want to promise you, Mary and Joseph, they experienced some disappointment. Because I can imagine they had plans for what their marriage was going to look like. And I can't imagine a baby up front before we even like are together is something that they had planned on. And this is just a little side note. It is quite possible, possible to be happy and excited about what God is doing, but also disappointed with what it means for your day-to-day life. That disappointment with God or disappointment in life is not a sin. Disappointments sometimes mean that I've finally given up on the thing that I know God doesn't want me to have. And so it is quite possible to be excited about your future with God, but disappointed that he hadn't provided a spouse yet. So you don't want to be honest with me. It's quite excited. It's quite possible to be excited about your relationship with God and walking with God, but disappointed in your current financial situation. And sometimes that disappointment causes uh, a lack of hope in our life and thus a lack of strength to keep walking through the process. And we have to be honest and say, God, in the middle of my disappointment, I'm choosing not to focus on the problem, but I'm choosing to focus on the fact that you gave me a promise that I know is going to come to fruition one day. Disappointment is something that shows up in the middle of the process. The second thing that shows up in the middle of the process is suffering. Suffering shows up in the middle of the process. Mary gets this promise from God and then has to deliver a baby. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever experienced childbirth or seen it, um, but it looks a lot like suffering. And to experience that unmedicated in a manger outside of a hospital, I can only imagine what Mary might have been going through. And too often, you and I think that suffering is something that should be exclusive from the process. That if I am walking with God, that means that I should avoid most of the suffering. That the path with God is the path of least resistance. But that's not always true. Oftentimes, the path with God is the one that leads us directly into suffering. This is why the scripture says, if we suffer with him, then we will be glorified with him. The problem is, if we're not careful, that suffering causes us to lose focus on the provision and to focus more on the problem. And so you and I have to be careful in the middle of suffering not to lose our focus. The last thing that shows us sometimes is just time. That because oftentimes there's so much space and there's such this big gap between the promise and the provision, and sometimes I just get disheartened. 
And I can imagine that all of Jesus' life, every year, Mary and Joseph probably wonder if this was the year that he was going to take their sins away. And before, like, the prophecy about him dying on the cross and before Jesus started saying that, I wonder if they even thought, like, oh, how is it going to work? Like, is Jesus one day going to wake up and be like, okay, your sins are done. Thanks for raising me. Is he going to do it when he's 16? Is it going to happen when he's 10? Is it going to happen when he's 25? And I can bet every year they think, man, is this the year? And I can imagine that sometimes they got disheartened and sometimes maybe they maybe even lost a little bit of hope and the strength to keep going. And so they had to remind themselves And in your life and in my life, the same things happens with the promises of God. Let me show you. John chapter 3, verse 16 is a promise of salvation, that God loves the world, and whoever believes in him, they won't perish. They'll have everlasting life with him. And so you you heard this thing as a Christian, and, and you didn't like the life you were living here, and so you are pondering on this everlasting life. And the day you became a Christian, it was so great. You could see it vividly. You had this excitement about heaven. But then somewhere in the middle of the time and the suffering and the disappointment of life, maybe you started to lose your excitement about heaven, and so you're getting disappointed, and you're getting depressed about what's happening right here because the process is making you lose sight of what God promised in John chapter 3 verse 16 and make you focus on what's happening here on earth a little too much maybe it is maybe it's not John chapter 3 verse 16 that's the promise you're thinking about maybe you're thinking about Romans chapter number 8 where God promises that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose but what you're thinking about is the fact that since COVID you've never replaced that other source of income that you lost and so for the last three years you've been walking through this thing and trying to figure out God when are you going to restore it God when are you going to do it and you know that all things work together you know that's a promise that God has made but somewhere in the midst of carrying this problem and thinking about your family you started to get a little tired and sometimes you even want to give up you want to stop praying about the situation you want to stop moving towards the situation why because sometimes the process hinders our hope Maybe it is you've been thinking about how in, I want to give you the address, how in John chapter 10, Jesus uh, promised, uh, or in Matthew chapter 11, that Jesus promised that if you come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden or heavy burdened, that he will provide rest. But somewhere in the middle of carrying all the problems of your family, somewhere in the middle of the responsibilities of being a spouse, somewhere in the middle of the responsibilities of being a parent, somewhere in the middle of the responsibilities of doing all the things, you've been willing to give up. And if you are going to be honest with me and be honest with yourself, you're saying, I know that God provides rest, but there are times where I want to take rest into my own hands. And what happens in those moments that I give up on the provision of rest of Jesus, I start to try to find rest in the things that bring me comfort my own personal vices, my own personal addictions. But it's just proof that even though I know and have heard it, in the middle of the process, sometimes I get ready to give up on the promise. And God wants us in the middle of these things to be focused on the promise while we carry the problem. Okay, Xavier, you're telling me all of this. We're talking now. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that in my life, this is how this thing works. What, what am I to do next now that I know that God has made a promise and, and I know that you're saying God's going to provide good on those promises? What do I do in the meantime? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter number 11 is sometimes known as the Hebrews Hall of Fame or Hebrews Hall of Faith. 
and, and if you read through it, it's literally a bunch of people and it's talking about all the things that they did that were accounted to them as faith. It talks about people who made decisions to leave their homeland and people who were, who were murdered for the sake of, of Christ and, and, and all of these things. But it starts out with this sentence about hope and essentially about a promise. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you've heard it in the Bible before, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that you and I cannot see. So clinging to the promise and the provision is faith. Another way to say it, you're filling the blank, is this. Faith is actively preparing for God's provision. Faith is... Even though I don't see what God has promised yet, I behave now like I've already seen it. And in Hebrews chapter number 11 runs through all these people who have faith. And at the end of chapter 11, it says, and I want you to know, because it's a bunch of people in the New Testament, that in all of their faith, people in the Old Testament never received the same promise that you and I are going to get to receive. They never saw Jesus. But it says you and I are going to get to see Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 12, right after that, it gives us instructions since we are going to receive the promise. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. That's every disappointment. That's every doubt. Let us strip those things off, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Because let me tell you something. When you start sinning, it's really difficult to focus on God. That's just a side note for you. That's why I said sin easily trips us up in this journey. Because when you get, oh my goodness, sin is literally rooted in selfishness. And so when you and I sin, we look at ourselves, we lose focus on the provision of God. And so our problems seem bigger. That's why when you're guilty about something, your entire life feels heavier because you cannot focus on God when you're too focused on yourself. And that's what sin does. It forces you to focus on the provision of yourself. I don't have time to preach that, but I just wanted to throw it in there for you. It says we do this, or it says, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It says you really want to have faith? Throw off the sin that easily ensnares you. You, you really want to have faith? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Faith is, even though I haven't seen the provision of God, I behave right now like I've already seen the provision. Faith is, even though I've never seen heaven yet, I act right now on earth like I've already been there. Faith is, even though I haven't seen God provide the rest yet, I walk through every day-to-day -day life like I'm going to see exactly what God provided. And faith is behaving right now like I'm not in the middle of the process. I'm behaving right now like I'm in the middle of the provision, even though the problem is still present. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had a friend. I'm going to leave your eyesight for a second online. Oh, look, you follow me. Look at the Lord. Uh, a couple of months ago, a friend of mine, don't judge me. If you do, I don't care. Uh, a friend of mine convinced me to buy one of these things right here. Uh, what this is, this is a virtual reality headset that essentially when you put it on, it takes you to this thing that Facebook has created called the metaverse. I know you're looking at me right now like I'm completely crazy and we live in back to the future, but I promise you it does. And essentially what happens is you have 
have these controllers, you put this headset on, and it transforms you into this new reality. And what happens is you can interact with other people across the world who have headsets. And I was like, I was skeptical. My friend told me to buy one. And one night, we went to a virtual comedy stand-up night. I'm not lying. So you walk into this virtual room, and there are people with these virtual mics, and you can only hear the people you're sitting with, and you're conversing. And during COVID, it was the closest, we were all desperate, it was the closest thing to hanging out that you could ever get to. The issue is that when you put on the headset, you can't really see anything else around you. And so the vision in front of you is what drives your reality. It's what drives your behavior. And the truth is that that is what faith is. Faith is, even though I'm in a different circumstance, I behave like what is in my head is already a reality. The faith is that even though things are happening differently around me, I behave like what I'm trusting God for is the only thing that I see. And here's what I love the most about this. When I put this headset on, I'm telling you, you can't tell me the Lord ain't real. When I put this headset on, I'll be in there, I'm laughing at something. I got my headphones in. My wife is looking at me crazy. She's like, you look stupid. And the truth is, you look, I look stupid even up here. The craziest thing is, when you have faith, you look crazy to everybody else around you. You look crazy. Because let me tell you, you're in the middle of this marriage that your husband has emotionally walked out on. And I put this on so you know I'm not looking at you. I don't know your story. But your husband has emotionally walked out on you, and you've been praying for the last 20 years that he would come back. Your friends say leave, but you keep praying. Why? You look crazy to people who can't see it. You've been praying for your son for the last 10 years because you raised him in church. He knew all the VBS stories, but for some reason he's drawn away. But you keep praying and praying and praying and praying and trusting God for provision. And you look crazy, but you know what you're doing? You're behaving as if the provision has already showed up. And even to everybody else, you look weird because they can't see what the Lord has already shown you. And the truth is that I can't think of any more bit of faith than when you and I focus on Jesus and we start acting like John chapter 14. Here we go. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Come on, somebody. Uh, If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, the way you will know. So what do I do? I behave right now like I've already seen the mansion. I tell people about where I'm going like I've already walked in the front door. And you got to get a vision for this thing. You got to do whatever you got to do to make it through while we're here on earth. I behave right now like when I walk in my mansion, the Lord already got my favorite orange juice in there. And I ain't never got to worry about nobody else drinking it because that's my orange juice in my mansion. And I didn't earn it, but the Lord gave it to me anyway. That's grace and that's favor. I I walk into my mansion. I get this vision in my head like in my mansion. I don't got to argue with my wife over the thermostat. If it's too hot in here, I bring it down. Lord, we're not doing that. And I behave here on earth like I already know what God promised is true. And if you and I are willing to have faith, it is I cling to the promises of God. And every single day, I don't walk around without joy. 
I don't walk around without hope. I don't walk around with my head down. I cling to the fact that what God said is true every day. Well, this is why you look crazy. When I lose a family member, I celebrate. Why? Because I'm not focusing on right now. I'm focusing on the fact that one day I'm going to see him again. Even when I'm sick and he doesn't heal me, I don't focus on the fact that my earthly body is tore up. I focus on the fact that one day I'm going to step into a new body up in heaven because I behave as if I've already seen the provision of God. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that I have not yet seen. But I don't have to see something for it to be a reality. God, thank you so much for the fact that you gave us a vision. God, thank you so much for the fact that your entire Bible paints a picture of what life can be like when we trust and cling to your promises and trust you for the provision. And God, you made all of these promises so that it is crystal clear in our head. So this week, God, when we're deterred by, when we are tempted to be deterred by disappointment, God, when we're tempted to lose, uh, to lose hope, help us to do what Hebrews chapter 12 says, to focus on you and to run this race with endurance. God, we're not focused on speed. God, we're not focused on strength. It ain't even got to look pretty, God. We just got to finish. So God, in the moments that we can't run, help us to walk. God, in the moments that we can't walk, help us to crawl. God, in the moments that we can't crawl, help us to fall in your direction. And God, in the moments that we can't even do that, just help us to keep looking at you. Because one day, God, when we get the strength to get back up, we know the direction that we're going. So God, thank you for providing this promise. God, we sit in a room full of people who are committing this day to behave like we've already seen it. And God, in the day that we see you face to face, the truth is, God, it'll be different for us, but help us to behave right now like you're standing in our presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen.